It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. And a very warm welcome inside uh, the closet that I converted into a podcast studio. And this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast, Minor League Baseball. I'm Tyler Ron, Sam Dykstra in New York City, presumably not in a closet. Hi, Sam. No, I was going to say, like, apparently we're we're painting pictures this week. Um, I am in my kitchen. Okay. Uh, I made sure to clean the kitchen table today. So it is a cleaner kitchen table than you would have had to picture otherwise. Um it's dark here. I don't know. It feels like I'm in a closet because I'm in a New York City apartment. But uh, no, I am I am out in the open. That's true. This closet, which uh, if I put my arm, um, like my elbow on the back wall, my fingertips reach like eh, about midway through the closet. So it's probably, I don't know, four feet by three feet. This would go for $3,700 a month in New York City. As a <laughs> if we put that right. Well, this time yeah. last year it would have. Right, right. Um, I think uh, this is also me is telling my, yeah, this is me telling on myself where you're like, I'm in a closet. So it's a, it's like a professional recording space. And I'm like, I'm out in the open in my kitchen surrounded by hard surfaces. No, no, it sounds good. It sounds good. Uh, and we, uh, and we say, Hey, and welcome into this week's episode. Uh, we got a lot coming up for you. Uh, we in a short while will be hearing from, uh, a 2019 CBA round selection of the Tampa Bay Rays to right now are, uh, in the midst of the American League Division Series against the New York Yankees. J.J. Goss, right-handed pitcher, will join us coming up in a little bit. You'll hear from Josh Jackson. You'll hear from Kelsey Hennigan. No Benjamin Hill this week, uh, but we catch up with a couple of writers as well. And a lot to discuss on the show today. Thanks for finding us wherever you did and uh, give us a, a rating and a review and a subscription if you are so inclined on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify and everywhere else. And, uh, you know, five stars, of course. And uh, with that, we'll dive in. We got so much playoff baseball crammed into our brains already this week. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday evening. And uh, what a surprise. Not a joke. I would have made this joke, but then it actually happened. Uh, Randy Arozarena just homered again. <laughs> so I don't even need to. Um, the Tampa Bay Rays number 19 prospect has been out of his mind, uh, just electric at the plate so far in the postseason through the wild card round and now into game three of the division series. Uh, he's been great. Sam, tell us about what you've seen from him and, and some of the other top prospect performances so far in October. Yeah, I mean, Randy Arizarena has been really, really special. He, he came into this game uh, hitting 632 in the playoffs. He was 12 for 19 coming into today, and he's three for three right now. So that average is up to 727. Um, pretty good. Pretty good. Kevin Cash has talked about his ability to make adjustments minute bat and how that's really the sign of a special player. Errors Arena, we always thought is kind of like a toolsy prospect. He's one of those guys who does basically everything well, um, but does he have a plus tool necessarily? Uh, he's showing all of them right now. And, and one thing that makes me think that this could be real uh, is that he ended the season on a really special note. He had, I think, seven home runs in September uh, after getting called up basically right at the trade deadline. Yeah. And 
so power was never really the thing in his game. We never thought he would be a 30, 40 homer hitter by any means. Uh, he started to show that a little bit at last year at AAA, but you take all of that with a pinch of salt, maybe even bigger than that, uh, given what we know about the AAA ball in 2019. That was when he was in the Cardinal system, Come over, comes over to the Rays, actually had a little bit of a COVID scare, not a little bit, but tested positive on intake testing. Um, that held him back. Part of the reason why he didn't, you know, join the team until later in the season. But when he did, he showed the same power he showed last year at Memphis. Um, so for him to continue that into the playoffs, when, again, you're going against top-of-the-line arms, I know it's an expanded postseason right now. The Rays are the number one seed, so they went up against a Blue Jays team that was just kind of happy to be there. But now he's doing this against the Blue Jays – or uh, against the Yankees, excuse me, um, doing this against some really, really good pitching on that side, uh, consistently hitting the ball at – hundred mile an hour plus. This is not cheap stuff. Uh, he's making a lot of really good contact, um, not striking out at all. He's only got two strikeouts right now through uh, 22 at bats. So, you know, do I think Randy Arizarena is going to be a star necessarily? Do I think he's going to be five-time all-star? I think this might just be a guy getting hot. Uh, I need to see this over a little bit longer length of time. But again, when power was kind of the concern for him, we thought he might just have average power for him to continually make hard contact and elevate the ball, put it in the seats. Uh, that's really special. And that that's what the Rays need. The Rays need these pop-up guys to do this because they don't have necessarily the built-in stars on the club. Um, they, they are as deep as anybody's going to be. And, you know, they're going to match up you to heck uh, to, to grind out wins and to get 27 outs every game. Um, but to have a star in the making like Arizona is right now is really, really special. Uh, we'll see what happens. One thing I want to note, maybe I should have saved this for nationwide prospect fun fact, but I'll say it now. No rookie has ever won an LCS or world series MVP award as a position player. Every rookie to do that has been a pitcher. Arizona, the LDS doesn't have an MVP award, but if he comes even cl close uh, to doing this again in the LCS, should the Rays advance, uh, he would be a big-time MVP candidate and he would be a candidate to do, be the first rookie position player to win an LCS or World Series MVP award. That's how special he is to the Rays right now. He's their number three hitter. They put him in every day in left field. Uh, and again, for a guy who missed the first couple of weeks of the season, it shows you what they think of him now uh, and it shows you the work that he put in to get to this place. Uh, the Atlanta pitching staff has been just as injured as injured can be. Um, but they finally started to get some consistency there as we've gotten into the postseason. Ian Anderson was terrific yesterday. Yeah, Ian Anderson has been really, really special and kind of the anchor of that Braves lineup. I saw a lot of tweets today. As you mentioned, Tyler, one of the biggest concerns for the Braves entering the playoffs was what was going to happen to their starting pitching. But Max Freed has been fantastic. Ian Anderson has been fantastic. Both of those guys during the regular season were really good. Freed had some minor injury issues that might keep him from being in the Cy Young conversation. Ian Anderson kind of came up late, but became an anchor of the rotation. And Ian Anderson doesn't look like a rookie whatsoever. Um, one thing that I'm really interested in, in the more and more you watch him on the big stage is we talk so much about spin rate now and balls being difficult to pick up because of spin rate. Ian Anderson does not have elite spin rate whatsoever. It's actually below average, uh, but he makes it work really well because the changeup has been a huge weapon for him. It looks like the fastball and then just tumbles really, really well. Uh, he's getting a lot of swings and misses on that. He's up to 11 and two thirds innings so far 
between his first two postseason starts has yet to allow an earned run. He's only given up five hits and three walks. He struck out 17 in 11 and two thirds innings. That's crazy. And he's got a nice whip of 0.69. So, you know, we'll see what, what happens to the Braves. They're up in the series right now against the Marlins. They were heavily favored to win that series. We expect them to be in the LCS. Uh, but if they can get to a point where Max Fried and Ian Anderson are, you know, two, two game starters in a best of seven, uh, that would be huge for the Braves. That's basically where they want to be. Um, and Ian Anderson doesn't look like a rookie at all. His stuff is playing incredibly well. He's been incredibly poised. He continually just rolls over lineups. Um, they are getting him out, not on the early side, I wouldn't say, but, uh, you know, six innings in his first outing against the Reds, five and two thirds against the Marlins. Uh, they are going into that bullpen, not allowing him to go through a lineup maybe four times. Uh, but that's what you do in the playoffs. And he's doing his job incredibly well. And we'll see how, how long he can keep this scoreless streak going. But um, if you're the Braves, you feel very comfortable about having a, a guy this young uh, in your rotation and as your number two starter, you know, at just 22 years of age. Has not been uh, quite the same postseason for some other guys. I know Davey Garcia, weird day yesterday, he was uh, given the nod uh, for the Yankees for game two. Then he was lifted after an inning, and that was some gamesmanship uh, from Aaron Boone, going with a, a guy to get a lineup set one way and then switching to Jay Happ after the first inning in that game. Uh, maybe the most surprising guy who we see at the major league level right now is a guy who joined the podcast just a couple of months ago, Ryan Weathers, who is the sixth-ranked prospect in the San Diego organization, inning in a third scoreless yesterday. Um, that's a, a guy who we know he's got major league stuff, but he had not pitched above Class A Fort Wayne yet. And we're seeing that a lot, obviously, in 2020 with how weird everything is. But uh, did not expect to see Ryan Weathers. And uh, a lot of people did expect maybe Mackenzie Gore would get that call. But instead, it's Ryan Weathers who's up with the, the San Diego Padres. And May, uh, after the injury to Mike Clevenger, may get a call to make a start. Uh, in this series. It might be a surprise, but uh, the Padres obviously are going to need all hands on deck now to try to uh, get into that series with the Dodgers. Yeah. And that I was really excited to see that happen just because I really enjoyed our conversation with him, as you mentioned, Tyler, on the podcast a couple months ago. And are, do you remember t talking to him about being in summer camp and facing Manny Machado yeah. and Fernando Tatis Jr. and how his eyes lit up and his first strikeout was against Cody Bellinger, right? Former M NL MVP. Uh, you know, Which, by the way, yes, that is David Weathers' son striking out Clay Bellinger's son. So you are all old, right? Yes, yes. And I think I think they mentioned on the broadcast that those two were, were teammates. They weren't. I don't know where that came from. Anywho, um, yeah, it, it, it's crazy how tight knit this baseball community is, and uh, how things like that can happen. But uh, Ryan Weathers, what he showed in summer camp, what he showed at the alt site in San Diego was increased velocity. Um, that was kind of an issue last year for him at Fort Wayne. He's usually sitting in the low nineties. There were times where he was only pumping in the high eighties, uh, but was consistently throwing 95, 96 in that relief outing. Uh, Jace T Tingler trusting him right away, throwing him early in there. T the Tampa Bay Rays the other night, they brought on Shane McClanahan uh, for his major league debut in the postseason, but that was kind of in mop up to He only needed to get one out. Ryan Weathers, came in in a big spot. He faced the heart of the Dodgers lineup, came out unscathed, was in line for the win at one point. Didn't work out that way, but uh, they obviously trust his stuff really well right now. And, and for him to come through in that way is a real story of somebody taking the opportunity of being on a 60 man player pool. Uh, you know, we, we talked to him about like, does it feel real 
do you feel close? And we kind of asked that in jest because it's just like, well, you know, you were in the Midwest League last year. This is as close as you're going to get for a while. But there was some strategy there. They they wanted these guys in the player pool just in case something like this happened. And for Weathers to move ahead of a Mackenzie Gore, I think part of that might have been because Ryan Weathers can do – they just trust him out of the bullpen a little bit more right now. Mackenzie Gore they may want to keep as a starter. Um, you don't want to throw too many different things at him, whereas Weathers – might be able to roll those punches a little bit better. Um, but for him to jump ahead of arguably the best left-handed pitching prospect in the game, um, for him to get elite innings like that so quickly is huge. And yeah, I'll be keeping a close eye on that series to see if he does get a start or, or how else they use him in the rest of the series. Cause there's no off days in the, uh, the LDS. So uh, the, the Padres, like you say, Tyler are going to need all hands on deck. And those hands now include Ryan Weathers. And with that, we'll transition to some uh, business of baseball uh, news. We told you last week, of course, about the the Appalachian League and how we're going to uh, strive to keep you informed on the latest developments in the uh, Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball situation. Obviously, the professional baseball agreement expiring on September 30th. That, uh, for all intents and purposes, doesn't really mean a lot as of the moment. Uh, that has happened before. Back in the early 90s, there was a situation where the PBA expired, and it's not as though we all woke up and, you know, the the sky had fallen in and, and dogs were walking cats or men or how does that phrase go i don't know um <laughs> dogs and cats getting along that's probably the easier there it one. is yeah right. um but there was some news today uh major league baseball announcing the hiring of peter b freund and trinity sports consultants uh to work directly with mlb and the owners of its licensed affiliates as minor league baseball's offices transition to new york uh, he's got ownership of three different minor league teams, uh, including AAA Memphis, Class A Charleston, and Class A Short Season Williamsport, uh, and is also a partner with the New York Yankees. This is uh, some news that kind of gives us a little bit of a clue into what the uh, transitional format is going to look like as these negotiations, these conversations continue moving along. Right. This, I think transition is the, the key phrase here. Um, this is MLB and you know the minor league team owners essentially establishing a transition team. We've always thought that things are going to look different in 2021. This release kind of addresses that. Um, you know, it says MLB will begin implementing a modern approach to player development that includes significant enhancement to the minor league experience for fans, teams, players, and communities, such as renovated facilities, reduced travel burden for teams, and improved daily working conditions for players. Um, so it seems like they're setting up the structure for what minor league baseball could look like in 2021. If they have that structure in place, there's a lot of details that need to be sorted through. Now, all of a sudden, Peter DeBefreund and Trinity Sports Consultants can be part of the team to start to sift through those details. Um, you know, folding into this release, uh, talking about the minor league baseball offices transition to New York. Again, there's that word transition. Um, how is that going to look? We, we still don't have solid details on that. Um, but the fact that this is being put in place and Major League Baseball feels comfortable enough announcing this means steps are being taken behind the scenes. Uh, we are getting closer to either an agreement or, you know, a, a final solution here um, as to what the minor league baseball landscape will look like uh, next year. Um, so it seems like progress is happening uh, from everything I've heard and, and read and, um, discussed with other people. Peter B. Freund, it seems to be well-respected on all sides. I know that's, it sounds a little too political, but um, 
you know, the minor league owners feel like they're well represented by having him there. Major League Baseball seems to have a pretty good relationship with him. Um, that's why they announced the hiring of him. Um, so it feels a little bit like an olive branch happening here. And, and this feels like good news at a time when we were pretty barren of news in, in terms of steps of what's happening. So uh, we still don't have a timeline on when things are going to be announced, when things are going to be solidified. Um, but th taking this step in the positive direction field feels pretty good right now. Um, and hopefully this transition will be eased with somebody like Freud uh, at the helm or at least at the table. So with that, we'll wrap up this uh, first segment on this week's episode of the show before the show. And we are headed to a, uh, an organization with a team still very much alive in pursuit of a World Series title here in the 2020 campaign as the 13th ranked prospect from the Tampa Bay Rays organization, J.J. Goss, joins the show coming up next. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you, based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. All right, this week on the Show Before the Show podcast, the Minor League Baseball podcast, we're really happy to be joined by number 13 prospect in the Rays system in 2019, 36th overall pick, J.J. Goss. Uh, J.J., thanks so much for joining us. How are you? Good. How are you? Good, good. Um, yeah, so we wanted to talk to you for many reasons, and we'll get to some of them here in a little bit, but I want to start with where we are on the baseball calendar. Obviously the postseason is existing last uh, as we speak. Uh, we talked a little bit last night. Um, you were watching the Rays game. You're in instructs right now, surrounded by Rays prospects. Uh, what is it like to be a Rays prospect right now? The team's up in the LDS. They're, they're the number one seed in the American league and in this very weird year. Um, but what is it like, you know, to be a part of this system at this moment in time? Uh, it's actually great. I mean, it's awesome to be in the organization to watch the organization have success. But a bunch of good guys and lots to look forward to. Yeah, and you've been a part of this organization for a little over a year now. Like we said, you were drafted in 2019. What has stood out in that short amount of time about how this club treats its young players and how it develops them into you know what we're seeing right now at the major league side, which is a team that's largely built around scouting and player development and, you know, seeing players at a young age and what they're capable of and, and developing them into major league ready and successful players. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a lot on the staff. Um, they take a lot of pride in what they do and for every player that comes in and works their way up, it's definitely like a lot of hands-on. They're going to work with you. They're going to get you better, and they're going to try to make that version of you on the major league side of it. 
And, and what do you watch specifically when you're watching a major league game, knowing you are a part of this organization? Like, how has that changed from your high school days in Texas to now knowing you're a part of this organization and to see so many young guys make uh, the majors earlier than we expected? What is it like to watch a major league baseball game right now as a prospect? Yeah, I mean, just to see all the top prospects in the organization kind of get their debut, like McClanahan had his the other night, and it's looking good. And then all the guys going from double-A to triple-A during regular season getting an opportunity with injuries and with all the COVID and pandemic stuff, just a lot of opportunity. Did, does it feel easier to see yourself in a Rays uniform quickly, or do you kind of acknowledge that this is a weird year? Like, how does – just this playoff run. And like you said, Shane McClanahan, does that change how quickly you feel like you can reach Tampa Bay? I mean, I think you definitely get the chance. It's just a matter of you working hard and staying healthy and faster you get to the big leagues. I mean, the better for the organization. Fair enough. And and speaking of working hard, like we said, you're, you're participating in instructs right now. I think you're the first guest we've had um, who is actively participating in instructs. Take us through what do instructs look like right now, because without a minor league season, this is as close to, to the minors as, as many players like yourself are going to get. Um, walk us through that. What, is, what do instructs look like right now? Yeah, I mean, instructs is nowhere near like a, like a regular minor league season would be for us. I mean, it's good to get out there and get in front of hitters and be back in the routine of things, but they like to split us up in waves and kind of, respect like the pandemic going on so we still got to be aware of that and cautious of that so we're split up into waves and your groups have a certain time and you get in there you get your work done throw your lives throw your bullpens and get out of there and i know in about a week we'll start getting inner squads which will be fun and when you talk about these waves how many players are they and are there in a wave and is it split up by position like are you only seeing pitchers and catchers right now uh, correct. So I got about 10 to 15 pitchers in my way. And then there's a those group of catchers that will be there to catch our pins and whatnot. And then that group of hitters will do their work on another field. And then when it's time to do lives, they'll come over a couple guys and that's who you'll face. So. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and we were talking off air a little bit ago that, that you've been down there for about two weeks now. Um, what are your day-to-day goals? Like how ramped up are you right now? Where are you in your progression? Where What are you focusing on when you are able to get in that work? Yeah, so in the summer, I stayed, like, ready just in case there was an opportunity for instructs. We had a throwing program that we stuck to. Leading up to it, I did get invited to instructs, which was awesome. So ramping up wasn't too hard because I was already keeping my body and keeping myself in shape, ready for instructs, and ended up happening. So ramping up instead of, five to six days a week now it's a full seven so definitely a little bit more of a workload and a little bit more i mean longer days whatnot hotter days but it's definitely definitely a little step right and, and where were you in terms of like how many pitches were you throwing in each session at the end of the summer and, and where are you at now like where where are they trying to extend you out to is it an innings thing by the time interest squad games happen is a, a pitch count like, where, where are you, at least in terms of how much work you're able to get in? Yeah, so in the summer, in our throwing program, we had about one to two bullpens a week. Two later in the summer, one early. And it was about 10 to 15 pitches each time. And then coming here, first bullpen, 
20 pitches, first live 20 pitches. And then I know I throw a, bull, or a live BP tomorrow, which would be 25 pitches. And after that, depending on, I guess, the staff standpoint is whether they'll tell you you got one or two innings moving forward. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and you're used to being a starting pitcher, so being able to only throw 15, 20 pitches at a time, what are you focusing on in terms of your arsenal and how do you kind of rely on feedback? I know technology is a big thing in the game now, um, but what are you looking at to determine what makes a good bullpen session, side session, whatever, when you're only throwing 15, 20 pitches? Yeah, I mean, on that standpoint, when you're kind of shrinked down into pitches and stuff and you're working your way up, I mean, you look at it as kind of a reliever right there. So you go max effort in those 10 to 15 pitches and you try to mix mix in what you got. I know as a starter standpoint, it's like I normally I wouldn't mix in that many pitches early in the game or show it to those hitters that early. So it's definitely a little different for me. Gotcha. Yeah, and you talked about being ramped up during the the summer just in case, and, and it felt like we were all going week to week in terms of could minor league baseball come back? Could there be something going on? And um, But we're – what was the Rays' plan for you, like in terms of individual development? Because this should have been your first full season. We should have been talking about potentially you starting maybe at Bowling Green, maybe at Hudson Valley or Princeton, but going from spring all the way to fall as part of the organization. Um, in terms of development, do you feel like a different pitcher? Were you able to develop over the summer? Yeah, I know. I got a lot of like work in, and I know Trackman and all that stuff's a big thing nowadays. And so having that and every time I throw definitely made me a better pitcher, made my stuff a little bit better having that through the four or five months we had of downtime through the pandemic, which helped me stay on top of what I need to get better at and what I need to work on. Trackman was definitely a big thing. Hmm. And what did Trackman reveal about your pitches and what were you able to do using that technology? Just working on, I mean, being a better rise pitcher, I know – they want me to be a rise guy. So working on that carry and that release point and just the way the ball comes out of your hand, the vertical and horizontal break and just having separation between slider, curveball, changeup, fastball. And, and when you're looking at track, man, what are you looking at, especially with that separation? I know spin rate's a big thing right now. Um, but when that is your feedback, what are you looking at specifically to say, this is what's changed about my breaking pitches compared to my fastball? Yeah, so just having that, like, distinct separation between the curveball slider. You don't want those to, like, mix and almost look like the curveball is a slower version of your slider. That was a big thing I worked on. And then, of course, the vertical angle of your fastball and just having the vertical depth of the changeup give it a good look to the hitter so it looks like it's coming the same. And just improving your numbers each bullpen is a way to look at it. So, like, each bullpen I'd go in and set a goal of that vertical or how I wanted to separate that day, get to that point. Every time I touched the mound, got me a little bit better each time. And I know breaking pitches and the change up are such big focus points for high school pitchers like yourself, who not only not usually have to use those pitches in high school. Where do you feel most comfortable uh, at with your off speed right now? Right now I feel I can, I can rely on them. I mean, course the slider in high school is my big pitch and that's what I felt like was my bread and butter so still to this day I feel like I throw slider any count wherever I want it when I want it and then through the GCL I know it was 
big on fastball changeup, and it really got me into changeup was like my go-to pitch. And so now having a changeup and a slider that I can feel comfortable throwing it in any count to like right or left-handed batters is huge for me. And one thing um, that was pretty impressive for you going into the draft, reading some reports about you was it seems like your velocity took a jump as a senior. It happens to a lot of seniors. I know that you're you're maturing in real time there, but what allowed you to make that velocity improvement? And was that something you were focusing on knowing the draft was coming up? I mean, going into the offseason training was big for me, my junior and senior year dynamic sports training DST out there by my house in Texas was definitely huge. I know the weighted ball program and everything like that definitely got me ready for the season. And I just saw Velo jump going into senior year and I knew it was going to be a good thing for me. And when did you feel like that really unlocked? Was it just before the season? Was it as things were getting going? I mean, I know you were on the showcase circuit a little bit as well. But when did it feel like your velocity was there to the point where you could be a pretty high pick? I know the summer going into senior year, I hit a couple of big five, sixes or whatnot. And then senior year when I became a low to mid-90s pretty consistently almost every outing leading up to the season and throughout the whole season maintaining that velocity was a big key to that. Hmm. And where do you feel like that velocity is now? Do you feel like you've grown any more in terms of it or – do you feel like you're still throwing low 90s, uh, touching mid 90s? I mean, where is the velocity as you matured another year from where you were in high school? Yeah, I know my arm and my body is not in like full season shape right now, of course, through summer being kind of slowed down a little bit and then now ramping it up a little bit. I think I'll get back up there. But as of right now, it's just my body and my arms not in like full season shape as it would be. But um, yeah, I feel like I'll be, I'll be back up there to where I was. It's not better, hopefully. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, as somebody who, again, this was supposed to be kind of your first full season, and it, as you say now, you're not fully into workout shape now, which is not where you would have been, let's say, uh, in a normal October. How do you feel like this is going to change your off season? Like you get ramped up to the point where you're ready to go in November, and then have you guys talked about a plan for the winter months and carrying that forward to the spring or taking time off again? How is that going to be different for you as a pitcher? Or what's the plan for the next coming months? Yeah, I know that's something that I'll have to, the staff will give us and I'll have to trust the staff there, whether they want me to keep going throughout the off season just to get in that shape or they want me to shut it down and then ramp back up getting closer to spring training again. That's just something I'm going to have to go off and trust the staff. Gotcha. <clears throat> And uh, just to touch again on, you mentioned the slider was kind of your bread and butter in high school. Um, what allowed you to develop that pitch especially well and get it to the point where it was a plus pitch? Um, you know, when did that really lock in and what do you do with it? Do you feel like to make it uh, such a quality pitch right now? I mean, I don't know. I just kind of developed. I mean, I always thought grip it and rip it as a slider. Just throw it hard as you can and let the grip do the work. And I just rode that, and it got so comfortable to where I could command it when I want and then just put it wherever I need it, and just been that, been that since. Hmm. So is that something like you got? You were playing with grips? I mean, uh, gripping and ripping it, it works really well when, you're, when you've got uh, you know, the velocity that you were showing. But in terms of 
you know, what were you able to show with it to make it uh, that comfortable in terms of like experimenting with it and getting it to a really comfortable place? Yeah, I mean, it was just playing with grips, and then one day just kind of found it going into like junior year. Just found it, and I've stuck with it, and it's worked ever since. And then I know like as like a slider guy, fastball slider, change up through high school, through curveball a little bit. But um, that was just my like wipeout strikeout pitch or even to get ahead. Hmm. And you mentioned the GCL before, so I want to bring that back up now as being the one place you actually got to play official minor league baseball last year. Uh, you made nine appearances. You only went 17 innings. The Rays were limiting you pretty heavily. Uh, you struck out 16, walked only two, but you finished with a 5A2 ERA. A lot of that is small sample stuff. I get that. But uh, what do you take away from that time in the GCL? It, it was short, um, you know, limited outings, you know, about two innings each every time you got out there. Um, but what do you remember about your time in the GCL and what do you take away from it? Uh, it's definitely getting my feet wet. I mean, I threw a lot of innings in high school my senior year, so they'd limit to me to one or two every time I started, which is – I was okay with that. That's fine. And then I know it's just, like I said, getting my feet wet and getting in the door of minor league baseball. It's definitely a bigger step than high school. I mean, the high school three-hole is minor league baseball's nine-hole. It's that. <laughs> like, lineup style. I mean, it was definitely a feet in the door. And once I got the yips out the way and kind of butterflies away, I mean, I kind of locked in and back just pitching and having fun. Yeah, and what do you feel like was your welcome to pro ball moment? Uh, either in the GCL or at some point during the signing process, when did you really feel like, oh, this is what pro baseball is like? Uh, probably my first outing in the GCL was definitely like a a welcome to pro ball outing. Walked the first guy and misplayed second pitch and home run. I mean, <laughs> was definitely like, hey, like welcome to pro ball. This is it. And then I know after the outing, pitching coach wasn't mad i mean like he said he looked at me and goes welcome to pro ball way to get it out of the way and i mean that was it yeah i feel like i, I should have seen that one coming you gave up three earned runs in, in one inning and that home run you allowed to let everybody know that was the only one you allowed in the gcl so obviously made some adjustments there on the, the back end um but uh kind of Let's go back to before the draft. You were at Cypress Ranch. You're, you're there with Matthew Thompson. You guys both end up top 50 picks. Uh, we talk a lot now about Harvard-Westlake and Lucas Giolito and Max Freed and Jack Flaherty all being at the same school. You guys were, were just two pitchers, but for both of you to go in high, such high picks in 2019, um, what was that spring like? What was it like going through that together? and both trying to prove yourselves to potential draft uh, organizations. Yeah, so every day, I mean, going through high school, Matt was Matt was always like the higher higher end, higher rank and everything like that. And just seeing that and just went down to almost a competing standpoint to where in between the lines we're going to compete with each other. And then off the field, we're going to be brothers, we're going to be friends. But I know we kind of took it to like a – like a competing kind of against each other level, but we were always there for each other off the field and in between the lines, wherever. So, so how would that kind of manifest that competition? Was that like, you would see him throw six innings, you would try to go seven the next time. I mean, how, how did that competition play out? No, it was just like, kind of like a ERA kind of 
what we're going to do wise stuff like that, like just who's going to be that better pitcher that day. And do you feel like that made you a better, you know, talking about trying to push yourself to velo and that's what helped you get drafted. Do you feel like that pushed you both to where you guys ended up in the draft? He went the second round to the White Sox. You go in the collective balance or competitive balance round to the, to the Rays. How do you feel like that competition affected both of your stocks? Yeah, definitely felt like it pushed both of us to like be the best of ourselves and show everything we got out there in between the lines each start we had because I know if I was starting, he was in center. If he was starting, I was in center. And just both being in the same positions, I mean, definitely put us to the best that we can be against each other. So what was the first conversation you guys had after you both got drafted then, Um, with it being such a competition? And and it working out in the end, you got drafted higher. I'll note that. But um, you both get drafted incredibly high. What did you guys talk about in that first discussion once you realized your dreams had kind of been – realized yeah i know he saw me we were both doing our thing during the draft day and i got picked and he was probably the first person to text me and um just going off that after he got drafted i texted him and then ever since then i mean we're just happy for each other that we both accomplished what we wanted to get done coming from the same high school i mean one two punches and insane so how much are you guys going to be following each other's careers? Like how much are you guys even talking now or over the summer? Um, you know, what is that dynamic going to be like now that you're both part of AL organizations, not the same division, obviously, but um, you're both pro pitchers going at it. probably going to be at the same level for much of your career, uh, just separate organizations. Yeah, I know we both work out. We're both from the same town. Of course, we both work out same place and just being able to, text him and ask him how they're doing what he's doing i know he's been up at instructs or what he's doing now he's staying in shape throwing and everything and just kind of checking up on each other keeping each other in check all right well we'll end on this one when you do get a chance to throw an intra squad games um so much of what we've asked guys over the summer is like what how do you envision that going uh and some of the guys it was for their major league debut but for you it your first appearance on a mound in a competitive game is going to be in an instructs intra squad. What is, what is, is going to be going through your mind in something like that? And, um, you know, how do you envision that going? Yeah. So, um, I mean, an inter squad of course is against the same organization as you. And I mean, you're going to compete with them and it's going to be, you most time know the guy. So it's going to be a little competition there. And I mean, I'm going to treat it as a, as if I was on the bump starting that day, I'm going to get after it. So are you taking scouting reports of guys at Instructs and saying like, oh, I know you said you're in waves, so you might not be seeing a lot of these guys. But, um, you know, do you have scouting reports? Or are you thinking about how you're going to attack fellow members of your own organization, essentially? Yeah, so, I mean, they know you and you know them. So you kind of know whether you play with them or you just hear about them or the talk throughout the organization and you know if they can hit, what they can hit, like what's their like strengths and weeks. And then, of course, as a hitter, they, they know all about the pitchers. And so it's it's like a little rivalry. rivalry. Yeah, no, fair enough. And, and going one step beyond that, um, again, you, you, you've only pitched in the GCL. Uh, it's no secret the GCL doesn't really have any fans, never mind some fans. Um, but – when you finally do get a chance to pitch in front of fans, whether that it's at Class A next year or what have you, when things shake out, 
Um, how do you envision that going? I mean, is that something you think about often, like what it's going to be like to pitch in front of a crowd and how that's going to go? Do you still feel like that's far off? Um, what do you think about someday becoming a pro player off the complex in Port Charlie? Yeah, I know NGCL, like you said, there's not many fans, if any at all. And um, I'm looking forward to that day when there's, I mean, there's a crowd cheering. I feel like there's a little more meaning behind it, a little more adrenaline, a little more like something to pitch for, whether it's that hometown team or just fans of you. I think it's going to be pretty cool. And how do you feel like that affects you as a pitcher? Uh, coming from Texas baseball, you guys get some, some pretty decent crowds there. Uh, what, what is the difference? Because we're seeing this now on the major league stage, obviously. They're playing it without fans, but they're still bringing some level of emotion. Uh, but there's nothing like having thousands of people around you. How do you think it's going to be different for you being around fans versus the situation you're in now in, in trucks or the GCL? Yeah, I just feel like like the fans, they bring kind of a different like vibe to, to the game. Like It's a little more meaningful than you pitching for yourself or for the name across your jersey. I mean, it just gives a little something behind it. Uh, fair enough. All right, well, J.J., we'll leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. J.J. Goss, the 13th-ranked prospect in the Tampa Bay Rays system, which we know is chock full of prospects, uh, even after a really great season, that system is still incredibly loaded. Uh, J.J., thanks so much for joining us. Be well at, at Instructs, and uh, good luck the next coming week. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Well, this week, uh, Benjamin Hill is on vacation, a well-earned vacation, I would say. Um, so we will be missing Ben this week. But instead, we are joined by another MILB.com writer in Kelsey Hennigan. Kelsey, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to talk to you about this story, which I'll get to in a second. But how are you doing? I'm good, Sam. How are you? Good, good. Thanks so much for doing this. So you are not calling in uh, from Stars Hollow, Connecticut, but you might as well be. And I'm sure you appreciate that I just made a Gilmore Girls reference because that's the only one we're going to get out of me from this segment. But uh, for people who don't know at home, this week was the 20th anniversary of Gilmore Girls, a, a show that was on for many years. Um, it was around a, a fictional town in Connecticut. Um, a lot of people loved it. I wouldn't even say it was a cult classic. It was just really well known by a lot of people. But what some people may not have known is that one of the stars of the show uh, was actually a minor league baseball player. Kelsey, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so everyone's favorite uh, curmudgeon diner owner, Luke Danes, uh, the actor who played him, Scott Patterson, was actually a minor leaguer, which, you know, that's one of the fun things about the minor leagues is that the alumni just are pretty insane of who actually ended up, like, playing in the minors previously. Um, so Scott Patterson was just another guy on that list of like, oh, wow, he played in the minors. And unlike some other former minor leaguers, he was actually pretty good. He was in the minors for, I think, eight seasons, seven or eight seasons in the Braves and Yankees systems. He was briefly a ranger because of the Rule 5 draft, but came right back to the Yankees. Uh, and he was just a pretty dominant pitcher. He had a good fastball, a splitter. He developed a slider a little later in his career, but he said that uh, when he got that slider, it was like discovering plutonium. So he really loved the game. It was really big 
part of him. Um, but it just, as the years went on, he was just bouncing between double A AA and triple A every single season, it seems like. Um, and he was just frustrated. So he ended up walking away, traveling Europe for 18 months, and then decide to act. And it worked out pretty well for him. Yeah. And, and reading your story uh, about it, um, some of the quotes you have from him sounds like he was somebody who was pretty confident who he was a, as a ball player, but not just because who he was as a pitcher, but it seems like he wanted to be a position player, right? Yeah. He said that he loved playing third base and first base. He loved hitting. He loved stealing. He kind of loved all aspects of the game. He felt very confident uh, going into the draft that he was a five tool player. And so that's what scouts told him. Um, but he could throw 95 and he was, you know, a tall skinny guy. And they, so the Ranger or the Braves were like, let's make him a pitcher. And you know, clearly he had success as a pitcher, um, but I think it just wasn't where his heart was. Yeah. And this is one of those times where I feel like we have to explain to people that just because he never made the major leagues doesn't mean he wasn't successful reaching it as high as AAA and, and keeping around pro ball as long as he did through two different systems, uh, is is mighty impressive and mighty difficult. Um, so he, even if you think like, oh, he, he was failed or he failed because he didn't make it to the majors, I wouldn't say that's the case at all with this. But one thing you touch on in this piece too is that being in the minor leagues for that long and being in the Brave system when he was and the Yankee system when he was, he crossed paths with some really big names. Who were some of those? Yeah, so he was teammate. He faced Don Mattingly. And then he got to be teammates with Don Mattingly. And he actually said that Don Mattingly was the best hitter he had ever faced. Um, so it was great that he got to be teammates with him. He was also uh, teammates with Ricky Henderson. You know, the speed of him was electric. Uh, he said that if he was to pick or make a draft of all, of all time favorite players, like the best team, he would have to debate between picking Ricky Henderson or Babe Ruth first. Uh, so that's how much he values Ricky. Um, and then the, his favorite pitcher that he played with was Dave Rigetti. Um, and what was I thought was really interesting was that the things that he really admired in these three players, I mean, besides, obviously, they're very talented. Um, but the things about them were, you know, he loved that Dave Rigetti was cocky and confident. Um, and what he said was he was um, a really strong competitor on the mound. Um, Don, Don Mattingly, he loved that he would play chess with the pitchers. And Ricky Henderson, he liked that he toyed with the pitcher. So you could see that he really likes the competitive side and the strategy of baseball. And that's what he really valued in his favorite players. And I think that's what he valued in himself was the competitiveness he had and the fierceness he had. Um, and that's also shown with one of his former teammates for battering, battering mate. I talked to Tommy Thompson, who is catcher, and then he was a White Sox coach in their system for 30 or 40 years. Um, he said that he was so fierce as his teammate and he really pumped him up. And then when they played against each other, he was terrified and they would just, you know, snarl at each other back and forth. They would make mean mugs and, you know, had that uh, fierceness, that competitiveness. And he was afraid that Scott Patterson might hit him like, you know, he did any other batter, um, which was especially funny when Tommy Thompson said that, because I had just been watching, I think it was the Padres wildcard game. And Rick, Rick Sutcliffe was talking about, uh, I think it was Tommy Pham facing Adam Wainwright. And he was talking about when you 
face a former teammate, usually like you know they're not going to hit you. Uh, so like you don't, you're not, they're not going to pitch you inside that much. So it's not that bad. But Tommy Thompson said that was not the case for him. He he was very much thought that Scott Patterson was going to hit him because Scott, you know, just kept with that same approach, same that same fierceness that he was going to attack you and he was going to best you. Yeah, and, and uh, one story you lead the piece with and end the piece with talking about Scott Patterson crossing paths with some big names. One of the biggest in sports history was Hank Aaron. Hank Aaron involved in the Braves front office at the front t- at, at the time and a skill that I'm sure Patterson used during his Hollywood days as well in terms of negotiating contracts. He didn't have an agent. He was negotiating the contract on his own uh, before he was getting sent to Durham, which at the time was a class A affiliate. What were the, was that discussion? What was his takeaway from it and how did it end? Cause it ends in a very special way. Yeah. So Scott said it was just the two of them in the conference room uh, negotiating his salary for his second pro season. Uh, and Scott said that he was asking for more money than any of the other minor leaguers around his level. Um, but he felt very confident that he deserved it. And what he told Hank Aaron was, if I don't go undefeated at Durham, you can have my entire salary. He was that confident. Um, and I guess Hank Aaron wanted to see it or like couldn't believe it and thought, you know, maybe this is a win-win. Uh, so we said, sure. And then Scott Patterson ended up going 9-0 and with Durham before, before getting promoted um, to Savannah, which he did end up losing at Savannah later on, but not until after he was promoted and not until after he broke the Braves' Miley record for starting the season with 13 straight wins, uh, which, yeah, it's just incredible, especially when you think about, you know, we talk a lot about wins now, not being that good of a determinant of if a pitcher's good because, like, there's so many – like other factors, like you, a pitcher can't really control if there's a win or not. It's the fact that like he said that he could win those many games and he could, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's incredible that he had that much confidence and that he could back it up. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, yeah, you, you touched on Tommy Thompson before as well. You talked to another person involved uh, with Scott Patterson who's gone on to teach other pitchers and even like Tom Brady about the mechanics of throwing. Um, what came up with those discussions about what type of pitcher Scott Patterson was? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that one of the big things that Tom House put, um, touched on was that Scott wasn't afraid to try something different. He wasn't afraid to try something that, you know, was going to make you uncomfortable at first while you got adjusted, while you like got used to it, um, as long as he understood the purpose of it, uh, which I think is very telling of Scott that he you know, needed to understand it before doing it, but he was willing to put in that work. He was willing to, you know, fail at first if he believed that it was something that could make it work. And, you know, it's a testament to a guy who, you know, would go on to have multiple careers, you know, after baseball, then obviously the acting was the big thing, but then he also has a band. He has a coffee bean company. Like this is a guy who is interested in trying different things. So the fact that it was, you know, something that was so memorable about memorable about him in the eighties and it's still a part of him is really interesting. Yeah. And one of the surprising things to me about this story, maybe it was just because I remember you trying to write it and work on it and all that. Um, just the amount of Gilmore girl fans who didn't know this about him, didn't know that he used to be a minor league pitcher uh, because again, like I said before, the fandom for that is pretty large. It was a pretty popular show. 
uh, 20 years ago when it debuted. Um, but what did you learn about this? What is your takeaway from, from some, something like this that is so fun in terms of, you know, there's who knows who is at a ballpark in Durham or Albany or Savannah, like you say, and didn't know that they were going to see a Hollywood star. You know, what is your takeaway from, from putting this piece together and how you finished it? I guess it's kind of like what you were saying earlier, but like just because someone doesn't make the majors and they're not known for baseball doesn't mean they didn't have success. Like I think a lot of times, like I said, when we look at, you know, um, Kurt Russell or uh, John Elway, like we think about like former minor leaguers, like we're like, oh, they didn't stick in the minor leagues very long because they weren't good. And, but that's not always the case. You know, sometimes you can, be really good at it. It can be something that's ingrained in you, something that, you know, so many, like the Yankees and the Braves, these two major franchises believe in you, um, but it's just not right. And so he ended up going a different path. Um, so it, it is really interesting to think about how many success stories there are that we don't know about. Not for sure. And I'll share this uh, before I let you go, Kelsey, you tweeted this out as kind of an addendum to your story, but t going back to Tommy Thompson, uh, using a little bit of colorful language that I won't use here on this family friendly podcast, but it sounds like he didn't know that his former teammate was even an actor, which <laughs> what was that conversation? Like when it was like, Hey, let me call up this longtime minor league manager, a guy who's been around, he's been all sorts of places in the white Sox system and wants to, you want to talk about a pitcher from 40 years ago. And you had this whole lengthy interview and then, Oh, by the way, I'm doing this. Cause he's an actor now. Uh, what kind of surprise is that? Yeah, that was so interesting. So I was, you know, just talking to him about Scott and like, like I said, former teammate, former pitcher he faced. And then I was like, so what did you think when he became an actor? Like, this is one of my last questions. And he said, what? He's an actor? And I was just like, yeah, yeah, he's a big one in like Gilmore Girls and Little Big League. And he just couldn't believe it. He's like, I guess I have to watch Gilmore Girls now. And he said that I shocked his world. Um, and now I just want to know why he thinks that I uh, was writing about a random 80s minor league pitcher. Um, I don't know. I guess there's interesting stories everywhere, and he just was going along with that. But I, it was just really refreshing that um, someone who actually knew him did not know what he that he became an actor. Because it's one thing if, you know, like, oh, I didn't watch Gilmore Girls or Little Big Leagues. I don't really know the actor that well or Seinfeld. Um, but yeah, he actually like knows him as a person and you, I guess you lose touch over the years. And I don't know, you would think that like he'd see a commercial or a billboard at some point and be like, hey, that guy looks familiar, but I guess not. Yeah, well, uh, just for anybody at, at home, uh, you know, who, who hasn't read this story yet, go find it on the site right now. It's, it's under the headline, Actor Patterson First Start in Minor Leagues. A lot of colorful quotes from Tommy Thompson, from Scott Patterson himself uh, and others. A really, really fun story. And uh, yeah, at, at a time when there are no minor leagues right now, one of the, my favorite things we're doing on the site is bringing you fun stuff from the past, things you may have missed, and just reminders of what could be the next time you go to a minor league ballpark. So thanks so much for sharing the story with us, Kelsey. And I'm sure we'll have you back on soon to talk about the next fun one. All right. Thanks for having me. Have a good week, Sam.
Uh, we continue along with uh, our Hispanic Heritage Month conversation through this uh, middle stretch of September and into October. You're on the show before the show and on MILB.com as well. We got a great story from our own Josh Jackson, which is up on the site right now. Part of the Lunes the Legacy series uh, presented by Nationwide. And uh, Josh, what's going on? Oh, not much, fellas. How are you? It's good to talk to you, as always. Ordinarily, you and I converse in uh, in peep show quotes, uh, a sitcom that you turned me on to. Um, that's pretty much our whole friendship. We just text quotes from uh, like a 10-year-old British comedy back and forth to each other basically all day. I, that's true. Yeah, there's usually, usually when I turn my phone on in the morning. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. always it. I have either a text from you that is a peep show quote from the episode you were watching the night before or like a ha-ha response to the text I sent you <laughs> before I turned my phone off the night before from peep show quote. I was so, so what we're establishing is this conversation will be much more substantial than that. And uh, it's good as always to, uh, to talk to you. We got a, a great piece that is up on the site uh, this week, and it is about the, uh, the owner of the Erie Seawolves, Fernando Aguirre, who is a, uh, a Mexican-American owner of the uh, AA affiliate of the Detroit Tigers in the Eastern League, uh, one of the, the owners in minor league baseball and in professional sports. There are only a handful who are of uh, Mexican-American descent, um, but a guy who got a chance to really sort of explore some of his own heritage and his own background uh, as part of the Copa de la Diversión initiative with minor league baseball and the Erie Pinatas, the alternate identity for the Erie Seawolves, their Copa identity. This is a great story. It's up on the site. Tell us a little bit about Fernando and, uh, and his path to this moment with the Seawolves and, and his ownership of the Seawolves. Yeah, so I think... First of all, the thing the thing about Fernando is he is just a he has a really interesting personal story. Um, he's he, um, he's he grew up in Mexico City, um, and he didn't he came to the United States when he was seventeen on a on a student exchange program, um, and ended up getting a baseball scholarship to to play college ball and and be able to stay in the United States to get an education. Um, and then had, you know, the, like one of like the most successful kind of corporate career you can imagine with, you know, I think he's been on the board of like the Coca-Cola company. He's um, he was a CEO of, of Chiquita brands international. He worked for Procter and Gamble, like the, you know, big companies and a, and a huge sort of, um, major corporate career he had all the while loving baseball um and by and by he he you know got back into the game and sure enough now owns the the Erie Seawolves and we can talk a little bit more about how that came to be but um when when the first time that the Seawolves had the opportunity to do Copa he didn't really think much of it He, he kind of um, said, okay, so some teams are changing their, are, you know, are, are translating or, or transliterating even their, their names uh, into Spanish and, and playing this, that team sometimes per week uh, or per season or whatever. Okay, that's neat. It's not, there's not really anything for us there in that. Um, and it wasn't until the next season that he understood that it was sort of a, a much broader um, initiative than that and kind of there was more room for fun and uh 
at that point, you know, he, he kind of said, hey, I'm from Mexico. I, we should be able to have some fun with this. And he sort of talked with his family about like what cool things they could change. Um, he could change that identity too. And, you know, they thought of pinatas. And I think, let me find the quote here. Uh, yeah, he says, one of the most Mexican things is, is pinatas. And, you know, he, he kind of, he remembered a lot, you know, about um, birthday parties and celebrations with, with pinatas as a kid. And then he realized that that's something that's internationally famous now. It's not just, you know, you never know when something's from your, like really big in your area as a kid, if that's like huge everywhere, or it's, you could go like the next town over and you don't know if it's that big. But so like he checked with, um, you know, his his GM and, and his wife and they were like, yeah, we, we know what a pinata is and, and they are indeed famous. And they said, okay, let's get going with this. And he was, you know, he was like taking pictures of every pinata he found. He was like finding pinatas on, pictures of pinatas on uh, on the internet and like, and sending those to, to Studio Simon. Um, was you know a, a design firm and um, encouraging like a really lively and colorful look, which they came up with, and um, that's kind of how that came to be. And, and let's get into how he ended up, you know, as the the owner. You kind of tease it out a little bit there. Um, you know, he, it sounds like he first got involved with the Cincinnati Reds, which was his favorite team in Mexico and that kind of opened up the door to maybe ownership of Yuri. How, how did he get into ownership here? Yeah. So the, the Reds, he was, he was like a really big, um, he was a big Reds fan as a kid. And then like the big red machine into the seventies, he was a big fan of as, as like a teenager. And um, in fact, he wrote a paper this isn't in the story. So this is, you know, I like to include these little extra bits here for, for our Radio Land fans. Um, they, he wrote a paper about um, baseball player salaries. And he remembered it like, you know, looking and Pete Rose had just fought for like a hundred thousand dollar contract. Um, and, and that was like when he was, sort of weighing the decision he'd been scouted by the Reds and he was kind of weighing the decision of like well do I go all in and try to make it as a pro baseball player or do I go into this corporate career which he'd already you know you can read about how but he'd already kind of gotten the wheels rolling on that um and he said you know like I'm not I'm not Pete Rose and Pete Rose is like fighting to get a hundred thousand dollars which was a lot of money at the time but not I mean even with inflation not compared to today's salaries and you know young young players which just weren't they weren't signing with the kind of bonuses that they sign with now um so he went in, into corporate life but cut two years later um he kind of continued to be a reds fan and chiquita he he settled in cincinnati where, where chiquita was based at the time um and he you know, he, um, sorry, I was just getting a timeline straight in my head right now. Yeah. Okay. I, I got Twitter mixed up in there because Twitter comes later and I was like, wait, Twitter wasn't around yet. But in, <laughs> in, uh, in 2005, the Reds changed hands, changed ownership hands. And 
the, the person that they were sold to is, is their current owner, Bob Castellini, who was, you know, a, a big sort of Cincinnati businessman, big businessman in the area. And, and Aguirre knew him through sort of a, a professional organization. And um, he also knew like, I think one or two of the other partners and um, the way they broke down the deal, which, you know, common, common way to go about like a major purchase like that is, is that people um, have the options to buy into investment units. Um, and, you know, they knew that, that uh, Fernando had this baseball connection and they knew he was a Reds fan. And so they offered him the chance to do that. And, you know, he says, I became an investor just for fun, but I started to learn about the business side. Um, and he, he told me about, you know, sort of a lot of conversations he had with Bob Castellini and, and um, the opportunity to kind of learn about, like really learn about what baseball um, was. So then Twitter comes in a little bit later. Um, he started tweeting, this I think is not also not, this is also an extra for just Radio Land folks. He started tweeting like a Chiquita Reds player of the game um, every game. And it wasn't like, there was no big sponsorship initiative. It was just the CEO of Chiquita saying, you know, I watched the Reds game tonight and Jay Bruce is the Chiquita Reds player of the game, <laughs> of the game tonight. And he would just tweet that out. And so I'm going to start a shell company just to do that for teams. That I <laughs> right, right, right. Tyler Mon international player of the game. Um, yeah. It's like, that makes Twitter sound like as much fun as I've ever had on Twitter. I'll just, I'll just, yeah. <laughs> um, but so, you know, he started making some connections through Twitter. You know, there were, there were like brokers who followed him from like a business perspective and the, you know, the people who do things like negotiate deals for chunks of sports team. And, you know, they, they started asking him like, Hey, is this something that you would be interested in? Um, is, and, you know, presenting him with sort of various ideas. And he was like, oh yeah, I'm definitely curious about that. And, you know, because, because he was sort of at least exploring those things in a casual way, this is after he retired at this point, um, because he, I, I think this quote also isn't in the story, but he said, you know, I retired. And so I started tweeting about baseball a whole lot more. Uh, which found that that was also something that I think we could all identify with be, or all sort of like look forward to like us, even us three like we three um, there's a day where we retire and then we start tweeting about baseball more uh, <laughs> I like that idea uh, but anyway um, you know so it was something that was on his mind and that, and he was public about it. He, he, was, he didn't try to hide that he was thinking about this. Uh, and one day the owner of the Reds, you know, he was at a Reds game and in, in this owner's box that the ownership groups shared. And uh, the owner said, you know, if this is something that you're really thinking about, something that you're serious about, I, I know some people that <laughs> here in this organization that um, you should talk to and like learn about how the minor leaves work because, you know, um, there's strong investment opportunities there. And through that, he, he was introduced to um, Chuck Greenberg, who's that, that name will ring a bell with um, a lot of Miners fans and, yeah. and baseball fans in general. He owned, uh, he was My a former employer. Years. Yeah. Okay. Um, with 
the, with Myrtle Beach, yeah? Right. Yeah. So um, he and uh, Fernando ended up buying a chunk of um, Myrtle Beach. He, he was, you know, that he became like the second largest owner of the Pelicans. Um, and his idea was he would kind of keep doing that, um, keep buying little, little pieces of teams or, I mean, 30% is not a little piece, but he would buy pieces of teams until he felt ready to both sort of like in good financial position and, and like he knew what he was doing to be able to go all in on a team himself. Um, but so that season, like the, yeah, 2014, that, that season that he bought into Myrtle Beach, you know, one of the conditions that for, for him buying it was he said, if I'm going to do this, I need access to everything. I need to know how every piece of this operation works um, because, you know, it's, it's a learning opportunity for me and I want to use it to learn. And the GM there at the time or the team president at the time, Andy Milovich, um, worked with him throughout that whole season and, and kind of tutored him through that. And, you know, next thing he knew, I think like five or six months later, Mandalay Baseball was um, was selling their teams and getting out of minor league baseball. And he saw that he had the opportunity to, to buy the Seawolves. Um, and here we kind of come to almost another, yeah, sort of another discussion that, that I, we won't get into too much. But um, it's no secret that the Seawolves were one of the teams that were on the list last fall that would, that, you know, came out, that was, that was leaked of teams that wouldn't be, um, that, you know, that would be axed. Um, and it had a lot to do with the state of their facility. Um, but at the time of Aguirre's purchase of the Seawolves, he, he was already sort of, I, he, he did it, on the condition that they would be able to improve a lot of things about the stadium. And they've been working to do that. They've been working with the Tigers. But his account, the Tigers were also, were as surprised as he was that they were on that list. Um, and the Tigers still now are, are working with them to design a clubhouse. They've had like a, um, they had a brand new state-of-the-art playing surface, you know, put down for 2019. And that was kind of, Every, you know, that, that was like the playing surface of the year for the Eastern League. Um, so there's a potential that that's going to end up being like a really happy and surprising outcome, um, which we'll all have to kind of keep our eyes on. No, definitely. And I, I'm glad you included that detail because I, I think writing about Erie right now, you know, it feels like a tenuous situation, but seems like the information he was able to provide you, especially when it comes to facilities is, is, uh, you know, op optimistic and, uh, brings a lot of hope to both Erie fans and Tigers fans who have grown pretty close to the Seawolves franchise. But, um, Josh, we'll kind of wrap on this one. You you've outlaid it here in the entire history of Aguirre's like, you know, life from Mexico city to the front office in, in Erie, um, you know, between, his home life in Mexico city, becoming a Reds fan there growing to love the game there. And that, you know, trip through college baseball and through the, um, the business world. What do you feel like he takes from each of those stops? Not maybe each of those stops from, but from that entire life and puts into 
his role as Erie owner? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, this, um, what, what I found really interesting about him as a subject is that he obviously, I mean, yeah, he's had his, he's had this corporate career. He's obviously a businessman and he could have, um, he could have retired and just, just kept tweeting about the Reds, you know, <laughs> or, or kept just his, his part of, uh, his part ownership of the Reds and, and kept tweeting out, um, you know, who his picks for player of the game are. He, um, but it's crystal clear from his life, let alone, you know, uh, hearing him speak, um, which hopefully you can get a sense of this in, in the quotes in the story, um, that he just loves baseball and that, that he carved out this, this sort of career path for himself and then was able to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to make this all about the game that my, that my life was all about when I was like, you know, six years old and through my childhood, basically until I started working for Procter & Gamble. I just, I think that's really interesting. Really, um, I think something most baseball fans can identify with pretty, uh, pretty strongly. It's a great story. It is up on the site right now at MILB.com. Josh Jackson, you can find on Twitter, the uh, favorite website of all of us, uh, at Josh Jackson, MILB. And uh, thanks, man. Great stuff, as always. Well, thank you, guys, and thank you all for listening. That'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Before we get out of here, Sam's got our nationwide prospect fun fact. Yeah. So this week's tool shed was actually filled with kind of nuggets about rookies in the postseason. There's stuff in there about how Willie Mays as a rookie uh, faced Mickey Mantle as a rookie in the world series in 1951. Lots of fun nuggets about things like that. But the one I want to focus on here is how we're actually setting a record in 2020 for rookies in the postseason. Uh, the record for most rookie starting pitchers in a postseason was set in 2013 when seven pitchers uh, pitched in the postseason as rookies. So the, that was Michael Walker, Garrett Cole, Sonny Gray, Hunjin Ryu, Danny Salazar, Dan Straley, and Julio Tehran. We've actually tied that record in 2020. Now, I will add the caveat that we're in an expanded postseason. There's a lot more teams in. There's a couple more games because there were wild card series, what have you. Still, because of the, that expanded postseason we are seeing more or as many uh rookie starting pitchers as we've ever seen um so those starting pitchers are ian anderson who we already mentioned at the start of the show dane dunning technically counts i know he only got i think two outs for the white Sox before they got to garrett crochet still got the start that counts uh kwan hung kim jesus Luzardo, sixto sanchez jose urquidy and davy garcia became the seventh the other night now we could break this record we'll see how things are going to shake out um, we mentioned Mike Clevenger being injured. Maybe Ryan Weathers is that is that eighth guy or Adrian Morahone or Luis Patino. Again, those guys might just be openers, but that still counts as, as a start in the same way Davey Garcia was an opener for the Yankees, still counts as a start. The Astros have been kind of shaky about their rotation. Christian Javier came in as a reliever uh, in the past in this series against the A's, but there's a chance he could be a starter. He was a starter during the regular season. So we could set the record with eight or maybe even more, uh, depending on how the rest of the postseason sh shakes out. But that's a storyline to follow 
uh, when you're looking at your daily matchups. Did a rookie starting pitcher sneak in there? And if they did, it might have set a record here in 2020. And that'll do it for this week's episode. Uh, big thanks, everybody, who joined the show. And uh, for Sam Dykstra, I am Tyler Mott. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.